0: Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Lakewood is a hip inner-ring suburb of Cleveland, with a millennial-heavy population of just over 52,000. On the surface, things couldn't be better, with many thriving businesses and restaurants along Clifton Boulevard. But a closer look reveals Ohio's opiate crisis has hit Lakewood particularly hard. Overdoses and overdose deaths more than tripled in Lakewood from 2015 to 2016, with 141 overdoses and 31 deaths last year alone. With much at stake, including home values, community image, many would choose to ignore the problem, but not Lakewood Mayor Michael Summers. Here to discuss the impact of the opioid epidemic in his community is Mayor Summers. So Mayor, welcome. Thanks, Greg. Lakewood
2: is an interesting community. It's a unique community in several dimensions, one of which is we have, do we have a lot of people, but more importantly, we have a lot of people in a very small space, 52,000 people in just 5.6 square miles. So our population density of about 9,400 people per square mile is unrivaled really in Ohio and for most of the Midwest. You know, I am very fond of using the term uh, that, in the concept that Lakewood is edgy in the best and worst sense of the word. And, uh, and my, our assumption here in Lakewood is that whatever's going on in the country is going on here, good and bad. And one of the things that's certainly bad across the country and certainly here in Lakewood is uh, heroin use and its implications and its deaths. Recognizing the trends that we were looking at and our obligations uh, to our community, and one of our major goals is vibrant communities and public safety, uh, we needed to understand w- why Lakewood in particular seems to be having more of these. although. The nature of our rental housing makes it more affordable for many to live here. But that's just part of the, uh, the, the question. Uh, and we don't fully have a grasp of why we should be hit harder than most cities. But the fact is we are and we needed to get going and, and
1: uh, take some action. You've been in office mayor since 2011. That's correct, seven so years. You, you've seen this opioid epidemic evolve in your community. Can you share with us what you've witnessed?
2: It was a random occurrence in 2011 and 12 and it began to be systematic in terms of our exposure to it. Uh, And and what was clear is we initially had almost all deaths from uh, overdoses. Uh, Therefore, we were very anxious to get uh, our public safety first responders armed with Noxalone, which they did, Narcan, and uh, as a consequence, we're quick on the scene in Lakewood, three minutes usually to a code one call or type type a call And you were one of the first
1: communities we to do that here in northeast ohio i remember that and and, and that, that
2: those, so, so so that ra- rapid response that will allow us to administer this uh, allowed us to save a lot of people but that began to raise a lot of questions uh two things we began to see immediately one repeats so we'd save them uh, for the next round and that told us that this thing is really insidious in its implications on somebody's lifestyle even though they had a near-death experience, uh, their their addiction was so strong that they, they uh, went right back to their their habits and, and therefore their risk. So we we began to see more severe patterns, more overdoses. Uh, and we save pretty close to 20 or, or almost 75% of those today. But uh, that means we don't save them all. Uh, and as a consequence, we have in, in 2016, 17, uh well, 2016, I think we had about 33 deaths. That's a lot of deaths. Uh, nobody could look at a number like that and say, well, that's just a business as usual. I mean, that's a huge number. Uh, and and so we, we began to, to, to engage. And what that means is bringing the right people in the room. And Lakewood's blessed in the sense that it has an enormous amount of intellectual capital here. So we have a lot of folks who live here and are willing to share their talents and their time. And then we also, because of our size and our complexity, we have a lot of folks engaged here, both on human service side especially in public safety so we had a lot of a lot of action but it was not coordinated and we were not sharing information we're not leveraging one another and i've subsequently learned there are three elements to our approach to this uh, drug question and challenge and one of us drug interdiction which is stopping the supply and lakewood has always been vigorously engaged in drug interdiction whether it was marijuana starting in the 70s to cocaine in the 80s and 90s and now heroin and fentanyl and cofentanyl uh, we have uh, what is now six officers fully engaged in drug interdiction, mostly undercover, five full-time on our Lakewood-related geography and one on loan to the Federal Strike Force. But then there's the second question, which is education, which I think, uh, Greg, from your experience, is the one that we need to do a much better job of, and I would certainly share that goal. Uh, and we can't talk enough about it, what it means, who's involved, what the steps are, how we recognize it, how we can engage as, as a neighborhood. Then the third step is rehabilitation. So interdiction, education, rehabilitation are the three legs to our stool, and we understood in Lakewood we need to engage vigorously in all three. Uh, The one we have the least control over is rehabilitation, but through awareness of the need for more rehabilitation capacity, uh, we've been fortunate to be able to welcome uh, external investment. Catholic Charities has built a 14-bed, uh, second-stage re- rehabilitation home just up the street from Lakewood City Hall. Uh, that was a little controversial in terms of the neighborhood. We worked it through, and it's been a very successful neighborhood fixture there. No no impact uh, on the neighborhood, as they might fear. Uh, second group that came was a private investment company called Lean In. Uh, they have a national uh, group of clients, and uh, they were able to buy a um, suite of... Uh, row houses on Owego Avenue on the west side of Lakewood. Um, They did it privately, up to 20 beds, that will be men. So we're fortunate that we are able to support indirectly uh, the element of what is basically 34 rehab beds right here in the city. We also have many sober houses that are in the city. And actually I was very interested to understand that they've been here a long time, long before uh, this issue came about. A lot of them started as alcohol sober houses, mm-hmm. and now have evolved into drugs and alcohol. And uh, they exist uh, in Lakewood, and they are non-events in a neighborhood as well. In fact, many of them are very welcome elements to that neighborhood. Uh, they're very well-run. They're very dedicated, uh, almost always uh, managed by folks who are uh, successful in their own recovery. And so they're highly motivated and experienced and and, uh, and, and can be very uh, supportive from, uh, from, from that experience. So Lakewood has really been engaged in a long time. We also have a long history of faith-based support of of AA here. I think there's close to a hundred different AA meetings that occur over the course of a month in Lakewood. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So the the, the actual fabric here is one of vulnerability and need. And uh, so recognizing that and drawing on it has been uh, something that's probably uniquely available to a community like Lakewood. So when we put the call to action which is really about getting all the right folks in the room together which ultimately was a group of about 50 folks to start. And yesterday, we just had another update meeting, about another 50 folks there, ranging from certainly the city to uh, uh, our local drug enforcement uh, consortium, uh, the Board of Health, County Board of Health, like court, Adam's board here, uh, Woodrow Project, which is our local uh, peer-based uh, sober house for women, United Way, University Hospitals, Cleveland Clinic, uh, Attorney General's office, uh, faith-based group, uh, and on and on and on, all folks bring something to the table. A connection to a society, ability to, to educate, uh, direct personal experience from their own clientele, North Coast Health, for example, which is our, our um, free clinic, all are at the table here, recognizing that we have to do a better job working together and leveraging what minimal resources we all have. And that set the table for what became Project SOAR, which is now about to be launched October 1st.
1: October 1st is October the launch date on uh, Project SOAR. Correct. Project Project SOAR, SOAR is, first of all, you know, getting all those resources, all those people around the table, and get them focused to produce a program such as Project SOAR. That's very impressive. Tell us a little bit about how you did that. And also, Project SOAR is just very, very interesting. So I'd like to dig into that in in some detail because it really provides that on-ramp a great on-ramp for recovery for people
2: well it in our first meeting uh we uh recognized that uh, we're in a crisis we declared it as such and i have publicly declared it as a, a public health crisis here in Lakewood and therefore we need to galvanize ourselves into very dramatic action we were fortunate to have bill denahan's leadership at adams board uh and we met around the possibility of uh, seeking a, a Bureau of Justice, a Federal Bureau of Justice grant. And that grant uh, would provide some resources to do something. And uh, we uh, worked together to determine we were gonna make an application to that grant and we were gonna try and do several things. One, make an impact and two, do something that might be scalable and, and, and something that would educate ourselves and other communities on the, the best pathway forward. We applied for the grant uh, and the basis of that application, which is ultimately what Project
1: SOAR is based on.
2: We haven't heard the results of that grant yet, but we decided that we believed so much in that application that we were going to do it one way or the other.
1: Outstanding. And that was a 300K grant. That's right. Over three years, right? 100 Mm -hmm. a year. Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: And and so so what we identified based on other successful programs throughout the, the country was this peer based response. And the idea that someone who has had an overdose would be the focus of our initial efforts and that we would meet with that person and, um, in a very uh, thoughtful way to capture this moment in time where they might have a sense of vulnerability and a, and a need for to make up great change in their lives. And the best way to do that would be to create a peer response. So normally you might so- show up as a social worker or because it's a criminal act, a police officer or um or some element that uh, would not necessarily recognize the addiction and the, the road to recovery but would indicate penalties and consequences. Uh, we have, have accepted the fact that it's an addiction. It is a health-related challenge and therefore we need to do a more thorough job of showing up with someone who can empathize, uh, not scare away, and provide insightful conversation about options, serious options. One of which was the recognition that if this, this addict had come to the realization, this was my moment, to, that we needed to capture that exact moment and take immediate action, which means to get them into a rehabilitation set, setting that had a bed. So that's I, part of the challenge.
1: Yeah, I, big challenge, and we'll yeah. come back to that in just a second. So where you're encountering them and, and engaging them, is this in their home after they've overdosed? It can happen in one
2: of three spots. Okay. It can happen in the emergency room, uh, where we likely might take them uh, and before they're released uh, and it can happen at their home a knock on the door with a, with a, a response team rapid response team or it can happen at our, uh, our fire station likely fire station number one which is up on Madison Avenue it's our biggest can, can be actually the portal can be any one of our three fire stations but we're best suited to handle them at fire station number one so an addict uh, makes contact with one of our rapid response teams. At that point in time, we call the peer support specialist. And uh, and the, we have enough of them who are trained and able that are and they're committed to making uh, immediate availability to the addict and the overdose victim. And we would then engage in a thoughtful conversation. Yes.
1: So what you've done here, we, as you know, Mayor, we've spent um, the last year kind of documenting and trying to shine a spotlight on successful programs out there across the country. Uh, in fact, one of the first ones that we found was quick response teams down in Colerain, Ohio, right. that I we, know we, you know uh, it's been a good source of modeling for us. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what you've done is very unique because you've combined the best of the three programs that are very very successful out there. You know, quick response teams, safe stations, which is a great one, and Anchor ED in Rhode Island. Right. So really, really unique. You've come up with a hybrid there, and and you, I think the glue here that holds everything together is your use in uh, projects or of peer recovery coaches.
2: Well, it gets to the idea that we have a lot of talent in the community, and it's geographically very small. So one of the elements that allows us to be optimistic is that we have many peer support specialists who reside in our community or are in these sober houses leading them. They're maybe a mile away. Uh, so it's not a logistical challenge to get hmm. that connection sure. so so remember the 5.6 square miles hmm. that's one of our unique advantages we have if you had a 25 square mile city that might be a very different challenge so we're hopeful we can prove the impact of the concept and that other cities may have greater logistical challenges but we'll understand it's worth overcoming those knowing that it can be effective but we're about to find all that out and we're 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 op- very optimistic um, we're confident that it's the best shot we have with that
1: particular overdose victim at that moment in time. Yeah. So let's go back for, for just a second uh, to the um, the partners that you gathered around the table. Mayor, could you speak to how you selected and invited the right people and got them around the table? And, and you know, I, uh, I've seen many of the participants in all the meetings here in Northeast Ohio that, that we've had and, and we increasingly have um, I've met many of them and they share a common bond I, I have to tell you and it's this this compassion and they're passionate about this cause How did you select them?
2: Well, we, we have a collaborative for human services that already exists here that deals with other issues that are challenging to folks uh, in their lives so we, we, we have a base of understanding of agencies, uh, governmental and nonprofit, that are already working hard to uh, support uh, a safety net. So that relationship gave a base of folks. Um, many of them deal with mental health, uh, which is an indirect engagement here. Many of them deal with physical health directly, and that leads to mental health and then other human services drama. So they all might start from a different angle, but ultimately they recognize that the client they may have has challenges and one of those challenges may be addiction. So uh, we, we have a long-standing relationship with this, this collaborative group, so that was the base. Uh, certainly the city government had a major role and that, and, and that would include our public safety forces, which is police, our narcotics investigation, our fire chief, our emergency medical squad technicians, all had to be at the table and they were all happy to be there because they're dealing with this stuff one way or the other. Either we're playing defense or we're playing offense and we've been desperately trying to get on offense and this was our first shot at it so we had uh the government was there in full force including our human service staff which has provided provided the significant leadership on the government side that's uh, director of human resources uh tony gelsomino and uh her assistant uh, katie kurtz who has really done uh, fantastic legwork and driven this whole thing forward So, uh, but we're all there. Uh, We all understand we need to be there and supportive and and engaged. We have other governmental units, the county, or quasi-government, the county board of health. You know, obviously they need to be there because this is part of their world too. The Cleveland Clinic runs an emergency room in in Lakewood. They brought their emergency room staff. They needed to be there, and they're there. We have a new family health center that's being built. And so the director of that new family health center, also a clinic physician, uh, is highly engaged. Uh, We have... uh, North Coast Health, who provides uh, low-cost or free medical services uh, to citizens in the region. They obviously needed to be there. So you started with a base of folks who are doing it every day anyway. And what we're finding in about our fourth major meeting is folks who now recognize they need to understand more or feel they can help, they're showing up, they're asking to be invited. Attorney General's office, for example, showed up uh, yesterday's meeting. Uh, That's helpful. Uh, they're, They're able to keep an eye on things. They're able perhaps uh, help us at at a time when it may this may go to scale so we had a big meeting yesterday there were probably 70 people there representing I bet 40 different organizations uh, all of whom listened and are sort of part of the ready team so I think uh, we're hopeful that this optimism that we've created around this project will uh, will garner the support and we can call on these folks as we grow to understand a particular need.
1: Outstanding. As we discussed a little bit earlier, safe stations is a part of this program. And in Hudson, we're also looking at safe stations. One of our challenges is the fact that we've got an all-volunteer fire department. So my question to you is, you're obviously a different situation. You have three fire stations. How do you deal with the response as with safe stations um, when you have multiple demands? In other words, you've got a fire that comes up. And meanwhile, yeah, at the same time or just before that, you have somebody that walks in and says, "Hey, I I need help." Right. No, that's and I think we're going to be tested on that score. So
2: that chapter has yet to be fully written. Uh, but we uh, our station number one is is generally always manned. There's a watch station there, so there's a, somebody already always available? It's a it's a big enough station. Twenty four seven. Twenty full time. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the uh, we have the advantage. We have eighty eight full time professional firefighters, EMTs. Hmm. So on a shift we start with twenty eight folks. So that's that's a big staff. That's only rivaled probably by Parma and Cleveland in terms of that resource that's available to a community. Yeah. So we're we're very fortunate there. Uh, but it's true there will be times that nobody is there. If, if all hands are on deck for a, 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 a natural disaster or a fire, then um, then we're we're going to be playing some some uh, secondary reaction.
1: Or you start responding to that person that walks in and then you get the call That's for right. the natural uh, disaster.
2: And, and I think the sense is uh, the the protocols right now are to create a safe space physically that the person can stay there. Hmm. And uh, we may all have to leave and the, mm-hmm. the circumstance may be, but you don't leave. Mm-hmm. You know, you're here. This is a safe place. You need to be here. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to be back and we're going to maintain the conversation. Or uh, in route to a fire, we call the peer support specialist. they're they're coming in uh, to the station. even though the professional staff may not be there, the peer supports support person is engaged and that's probably the most important conversation anyway. Sure. Yeah. and yeah. they're not going to be at that fire or that right. natural disaster right. So creating the immediate reaction to get the team uh, the, the rapid response team going is is really the number one challenge and an opportunity. So I think you and I should talk in a, maybe four or five months, six months and let's find out how we're dealing with
1: that one. Terrific. We'll look forward to that. So now that President Trump has declared the opioid epidemic a national emergency, what do you think it'll mean to cities like Lakewood across the country who are on the front lines fighting the opioid epidemic? What would you, I I, I probably should ask you, what would you hope?
2: There's recognition both at the federal and the state of Ohio level, and there were significant resources uh, garnered from this new budget that uh, went into place in Ohio, uh, the problem is they're not linked to strategy. So there's good news, resources, but uh, how they engage those resources is the question. And In our case, we'd love to get that Bureau of Justice grant. That 300,000 uh, would be very important to us. At this point, if we had more money, I'm not sure how we would use it well. I think we, we need to be thoughtful. Uh, let's get this program launched. Uh, let's get some experience under our belt. This group that met yesterday, all 70 of us agreed to meet again in January or February to gather the information that, that uh, we will then have from three or four months of Project SOAR. Uh, I think we recognize that there has to be more rehab beds. So if there's money to be invested in, in the short term, uh, boy, let's figure out how to create re- rehab bed capacity so that that moment in time that becomes uh, the action for uh, a a post uh, overdose victim can can find that bed. In our case, we're we're gonna we're we're gonna be paying for it, but that's not gonna be the case for everybody else out there. Mm. So more beds for sure. Sure. The education doesn't necessarily have to be expensive, um, but we need to stay stay on task here to bring the community in. We've had three public events in Lakewood. The most recent one really were, were significant testimonials from folks like you, uh, a mother who had lost a son. Uh, a, uh, two folks who were recovering uh, addicts themselves who shared their story uh, and how surprised they were to find themselves in that position and what they needed to do to get out of it and how fragile that they still feel. Uh, it's important for us as, as a neighborhood to understand that. And in your particular experience, I think you can add even more emphasis to me to understand how we can recognize this better than we are. Uh, behavioral issues, vulnerability issues, uh predilection to this. And I know in my family, we have a long history of alcoholism. So when I've talked to my three kids about, you do not take it for granted that you couldn't fall into this trap. Others in our family have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to be vigilant to that and watch your habits. And I still worry about that. I still sure. uh, understand how vulnerable my family is and has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a blink of an eye, any one of us could find ourselves in this situation. Uh and that's part of the point is this is not something we should stigmatize. This is in every neighborhood. It likely is indirectly in almost every family or extended family. And recognizing that that's where the world we're in and how we all have a role to, uh, to, to be part of the solution is a part of the education need. Boy, we've got a long, long road ahead of us there.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, it's been stated by the U.S. Surgeon General that it's a brain disease emphatically stated. And I hear more talk about that now out in the community when I go to events and just general when the topic comes up. In your community, do you see a little bit of a shift and going uh, from this moral failing and this bad judgment over to a recognition that it's actually a, a, a disease, a chronic brain disease that's a lifelong battle? I think the group that we've assembled
2: is learning about that.
1: So we uh, have been
2: educated as, uh, as a task force on Project SOAR about this, so that was new knowledge to me. I've heard it from a variety of sources. I now see the breadth of the impact, understanding it could be you or me or anybody else under the different set of circumstances. Uh, and we also understand that our medical community is creating a runway to this by how we deal with pain so we've got a whole lot of social forces that are at play that are creating this need that go way beyond the idea of a uh, bad behavior i think we have to continually talk about uh, that pathway and how you get a prescription that deals with pain and you do you take it as instructed and those instructions are the beginning of this pathway
1: and our governor has gone so far as limit it to seven days for adults for prescription of opioids, five days for children. That's a
2: good step in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of it, too, is maybe for many, many ailments, not even uh, an opioid. Ibuprofen on uh, you know, extra powerful. Start there, and and only then maybe you go to the next step. But we start with the best we have in dealing with pain, but that's a dangerous step.
1: What final thoughts do you have for our listeners on the opioid epidemic and the community response in Lakewood? Well, the fact
2: that this stuff is so abundant, and it's so cheap, and it's so powerful, is very, very scary. Mm -hmm. I... I just don't know where this is gonna end. I've heard estimates that we haven't even peaked yet, that likely 2023, I don't even know how that number or year comes about is likely where we're gonna peak. And I, Even if that's right, that's five years, six years from now. That means we're gonna get worse every year. Uh, so the idea that whatever we're doing, we need to double our efforts the best we can is what's, what's upon us. It's just one of those social trends that becomes a major scourge to every community and we have to to engage. It's you have no choice. It's it's here.
1: Well, I want to thank you, Mayor, for your time today. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Greg, and, and I appreciate the mission you're on and I wish you all the success in the world.
1: Okay. We've been joined today by Mayor Michael Summers, who is the mayor of Lakewood and he is leading the effort in their community. They've come up with a very unique program that's a hybrid of some of the best programs that we've seen and witnessed across our country. And they roll that out October 1st, it's Project SOAR, and we look forward to your success. My name is Greg McNeil, I'm founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover Two PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast.